Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. It is my intention to finish the book of Isaiah tonight, which means I'll have you out of here by 10.30, 11 at the latest. So feel good about that. In order to understand Isaiah 66, which is really a summation of the whole book, you have to understand the historic setting into which Isaiah was putting out this prophecy. As you know by now, the children of Judah were in the Babylonian captivity, and Nebuchadnezzar had raised Jerusalem and the temple to the ground, and there were certainly a large population of Jerusalem who thought that the temple of God could never be destroyed. It would never fall. I mean, come on, it's the temple of Yahweh. How would he allow such a thing? Mm -hmm. And yet, in punishing those people and driving those people into the Babylonian captivity, God allowed that the city and the temple would fall to foreign hands. And so that caused a tremendous amount of religious consternation and argument among the Jews. There were some people who still believed what Jeremiah had predicted, that the Babylonian captivity would be 70 years. People like Daniel, who even says in his book that he had been reading from Jeremiah and understood that it would be 70 years. And so there were those faithful people who in God's description, even trembled at his word, had such reverence for his word, that they believed God that the punishment of Israel was not going to be everlasting. It was not going to be continual. But then there were also people within Judah who felt that the temple could never fall, and the fall of the temple and their transport into Babylon made them cynical, made them start thinking that maybe Yahweh was not the God for them, and that while they had been in Jerusalem, they had been giving their sacrifices, they had been doing their things, bringing their oxen sheep to the temple. They were going through the religious practices, but apparently their hearts were not really in it because God is going to call them out for their hypocrisy in this chapter. So the first part of the chapter is really God responding to those two groups. The group who he says are humble, contrite in their heart, who tremble at his word. And then there's the group who he says hates that faithful group and yet are part of Judah and who would brag that they had gone to the temple and done their sacrifices and they were the religious people. But now they believed, well, We're driven out of our land, and that's permanent. And yet, look at these people who faithfully seem to believe that we're going to go back and the temple's going to get rebuilt and all that. Well, that's not happening. Haven't you looked at us? Haven't you seen our condition? Haven't you seen how we are? So God is going to address both of those groups and then finish up the book with yet again another promise 
of Jerusalem's wonderful future. So Isaiah makes another one of those leaps from the immediate return. But then as he's talking about the reestablishment of Jerusalem, which actually did happen during Zerubbabel's time and the rebuilding of the wall and everything, and he's going to leap eschatologically to the end and talk about the glorious future that Jerusalem still has. And so that is a summation of the whole chapter. And just like all the way through Isaiah, Isaiah doesn't take the time in his sort of narrative, in his conversations of his prophecy to say, and now God says, and then this group of people say, and then this group, you just have to read what is said, and you can kind of figure out who the different groups are, which is why I thought I'd lay it out right at the front. So there's the group who believes that the temple is destroyed. So that must be the end for Judah because they had reached the point where they really worshiped the temple more than they worshiped God. That is why verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, In other words, God's saying, I cannot be contained. So then where is the house that you could build for me? It would be impossible for you to build a house that could contain me. If you would, real quickly, Tom, there, take a look at 1 Kings 8.27. After Solomon had finished building the temple, in the dedication of the temple... Solomon made a very similar comment because Solomon understood that this was a house that was appropriate for the worship of God, but that God could not be contained in this thing that he had built with his hands. What does it say, Tom? But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house I have built So Isaiah is simply repeating what Solomon said at the establishment of the temple. This is a place where the worship of God takes place, but God cannot be contained by the heavens. And so he's not going to be contained by a house. So here's God saying the same thing. For those who are upset that my house is destroyed and think that's the end of my relationship with Israel, he says, where is a house that you could build for me? Where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, and thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. If that sounds familiar, we just saw that Sunday out of the book of Revelation. God consistently refers to himself as the one who is the maker and the creator of everything, and he even is surrounded by Myriads and elders and living creatures who all declare over and over again the majesty, the splendor, the authority, the power of God who makes everything and that everything exists because of him. Everything is sustained because of him. So that's definitional to who God is. That's definitional to the God of the Bible and the God that we worship. He is the God who is the maker of heaven and earth. And even he wears that as a definition for who he is, what he's like. My hand made all these things, and thus all these things came into being, says the Lord. 
But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite in spirit. That's the opposite of egocentric or self-centered. But the one who is contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. For 20 years now here at GCA, I've been repeating over and over the importance of the word of God and how Christ kept putting importance on the word of God and how God here keeps putting emphasis on the word of God. And he expects his people to not just read his word, but to be so affected by it that they hold it in reverence. They tremble at it. They recognize that being the very word of God, it cannot be changed. It cannot be broken. It cannot be altered. And that his word is going to come true. So this is the beginning of God dividing those two camps that I've described because he said, okay, now the people that I'm going to pay attention to, the ones I'm going to respond favorably to are the people who are humble, contrite in spirit, and who really pay attention to my word. Those people would believe that the Babylonian captivity was only going to be 70 years. Why? Because Jeremiah said so. It's in the word of God. But on the other hand, there are those people who have worshipped the temple itself and who have also worshipped Yahweh and at the same time worshipped foreign gods. And so they are responsible in a very hypocritical way before God. So he turns his attention to that group starting in verse 3 because they're the ones who came into the temple bringing their ox and their sheep and their grain offerings They're the ones who thought they were doing all the religious stuff, doing it accurately, and therefore God was going to be good to them, or at least God owed them something. God says, but he who kills an ox, which is exactly described in the law, one of the necessary sacrifices, was killing oxen to God. And God says, The case now with these people is he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. So even as they were doing the proper religious exercise according to the law, God was holding them guilty like they were manslayers. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers pig's blood. Boy, that was one of the great historic abominations in the temple when Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig on the altar of God, desecrated the altar of God. God here says, if you do it with the wrong attitude, if you do it just religiously, if you come into the temple that's dedicated to my worship and you bring your grain offering, if you do it hypocritically, if you do it at the same time that you're worshiping foreign gods, if you do it and your whole heart is not in it and you are not contrite in spirit about it, I will consider that offering you've brought to be nothing better than pig's blood. You are desecrating my temple. He who burns incense, yeah, that's absolutely demanded in the law. But he who burns incense will be like one who blesses an idol. And now God holds them responsible for that rebellion and says, they have chosen their own way and their soul delights in their abominations. 
Okay, so what exactly are their abominations? Because they're bringing their ox, they're bringing their sheep, they're bringing their grain offerings, they're bringing their incense, they're doing the things that the law says they're supposed to do, and God says it's abominable. The way they have done it in sharing his worship, his rightful worship, his required expected worship, and sharing that with foreign gods, and misunderstanding the purpose of the temple until the temple itself becomes an instrument of your religion. And God here has knocked down the temple and said, I'm still worth worshiping. You cannot contain me in a house that you have built. So he's demonstrating to them all the ways that their religious practice does not help them because their heart is in the wrong place. They have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abomination, so I will choose their punishments. And I will bring on them what they dread, because I called, but no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. And they did evil in my sight, and they chose that in which I do not delight. This is not what God wants from his people. And so, even in the midst of going through the religious practice, even though they were following the letter of the law, the fact that they were doing it in a hypocritical way caused God to say, I will punish them. I've driven them out of the fellowship of Judah And that's why they're in Babylon at this very moment. So verse 5 says, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Now this is a little convoluted in the NASB. It's a little convoluted in in the Hebrew. But let's see if we can walk through this slowly. Because he's talking to both groups here. And he's pitting one group against the other. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Okay, we know which group that is. That's the group that is contrite in heart, who fear the Lord, who reverence his word. Then God says to them, your brothers who hate you and exclude you for my name's sake. Okay, because you're dedicated to me and because you tremble at my word, you're dedicated to what my word says. And so you understand that the Babylonian captivity is only going to be 70 years. And then Israel's going to be reestablished. It's going to be rebuilt. The temple's going to be rebuilt. My worship is going to continue in the place where I have placed my name. But there is this group in Babylon that doesn't believe that's possible, doesn't believe that Israel is going to be restored to their land, doesn't believe what the word of God says. And so that group who doesn't believe the word of God mocks the people who do. It's sort of the same to this very day. Those who are holding to the word of God are the objects of mockery by those who don't believe the word. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, let the Lord be glorified so that we may see your joy. In other words, what they're saying is, I hope it does happen. I hope that Jerusalem is reestablished so that I can see you be very happy again because 
you finally got what you expected. You got to go back to Jerusalem. You got to rebuild your temple. And oh, what great joy for you. The reason I know that that is a mocking statement is because God says, but they will be put to shame. So clearly that has to be read as a mockery by the unbelievers toward the believers. But God, the one who says that justice belongs to him and that he is the one who is going to recompense in the course of making all things true and just, says that he is going to put those mockers to shame. And then starting in verse 6, Isaiah launches into prophecy and says, A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple. Okay, now that presupposes that the temple exists, which at the moment that Isaiah is saying this, the temple does not exist. And yet there is this moment coming where there's going to just be this sound, this uproar from the city, and this great voice from the temple of God. The voice of the Lord, who is rendering recompense to his enemies. So the day is going to come, just like we've seen all the way through the book of Isaiah, the day is going to come when God is going to reestablish Israel in order to show his enemies that he is the real God. Because he's done something no one else can do. In the history of the world, you cannot find any nation that has been completely destroyed and then refurbished. They suddenly exist again. They're they're suddenly back in their land. They're suddenly, there is nothing like that. God points it out and says, who's ever heard of something like this? Watch what I'm going to do. My temple's been destroyed, the walls are knocked down, Jerusalem, the place where I placed my name, has been destroyed, and the people have been driven out, and I'm going to reestablish them again just because nobody else could do that. The voice of uproar in the city and a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. And then he describes the reestablishment of Israel. Before she travailed... She brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Now, of course, that has obvious messianic implications to it. That from Israel, there is going to be a birth of a boy that is going to be the foundation of the reestablishment of Israel. So that element is in there. But also God describes it as a woman who gives birth before she even has labor pains. That never happens. Before she even travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? God knows that he's being utterly unique here. He knows that in the reestablishment of Jerusalem, in bringing them back at the end of 70 years, in having the temple rebuilt, in having the city rebuilt, he knows that he's doing something that has never been done in history, which is the destruction and then reestablishment of a nation. But then he's going to use language in the midst of talking about this reestablishment of Jerusalem, this reestablishment of the Jews back to Jerusalem, 
he's also going to use this prophetic language that has the sound of new birth to it. Listen to this. Verse 8. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land, a nation, a whole people group be born in one day? Can a nation, a whole people group, be brought forth all at once? Now, of course, we know from Isaiah's earlier prophecies, and we know from all the prophets, major and minor in the Old Testament, that they all speak with one voice, and they all predict the day that all 12 tribes of Israel are going to be reestablished in their land, and then Christ is going to return, and they're going to look on him whom they pierced and weep as a mother weeps over her only child. There is going to be national repentance when they see their Lord and Savior return. And it's going to be like a nation born in a day. And God, in predicting it, even takes the time before he tells about it to say, come on, who's ever seen this? When did I ever do this before? When has this ever happened in the history of planet Earth? I'm going to regenerate, reestablish my people because they are my people. And when he does it, it's going to be a signal to the nations that Yahweh alone is God. Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth, this time, her sons, plural, her offspring, her children. And that's why I think it's sort of significant that he started by saying that before she travailed, before she had her pains, she gave birth to a boy, which is very messianic. But the birth of that boy is also the basis for the reestablishment of the whole nation. So the whole nation, Zion, will bring forth sons, children. They're going to be a plentiful people. And then God asks the rhetorical question, shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery? In other words, would I go through all of the birthing process and then fail to actually bring forth the children? And so he is describing this process of taking them out of Jerusalem, taking them into Babylon, promising them that they're going to be restored after 70 years, and then promising them this glorious future on the basis of promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying all of that is the birthing process of the great nation you're going to be. And would I go through all of that? Would I bring you right to the point of birth and then not do it? And of course, that's a response to the hypocrites within Jerusalem, the cynics within Jerusalem, who don't believe the word of God, who as they're in Babylon, as they're under the pressure of occupation of Jerusalem, as they're going through all of that, it's very difficult for them to conceive that God's word says, but there's reestablishment coming. There is national pride coming. The, the nations of the earth, the Gentiles, are all going to flow to you. Blessings are going to come down from heaven through Zion out to all the other people groups. 
I'm going to regather you. I'm going to reestablish you in your own land. That was really, really hard for them to believe, given their circumstances. And that's why God would say, would I go through everything I've gone through with you? And then not do what I said I'm going to do? Would I bring you right to the point of birth and then not have you born? Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I, who gives delivery, shut the womb, says God? Those are really good questions. I'm the one who has promised you this this birthing, this regeneration, this reestablishment in your land. Will I promise you all that and then not do it? Well, anyone who believes the word of God, anyone who trembles at the word of God, would have to say, no, God is absolutely going to do it. And why do I know he's going to do it? Well, because it says it. It's right in God's word. And so we have a confidence that God is going to reestablish Jerusalem, reestablish the 12 tribes of Israel, regather Israel in their land, and that he has a glorious future ready for them, regardless of what it looked like during Babylon, regardless of what it looked like after 70 AD, regardless of what it's looked like 2,000 years after Jesus was here, regardless of the fact that the circumstances of life on planet Earth appear to mitigate against God actually doing all that. As a consequence, there are a lot of theologies out there and eschatologies that say the same thing that the Jews, the cynical Jews, would say, which is, no, God's not going to do that. I don't believe his word. God likens it to just not believing my word, not trembling at my word. I think that same charge could be leveled at a lot of people today who continue to believe that God is done with Israel, despite the fact that his word says over and over again that he is not. So then starting in verse 10, it gets really prophetic and eschatological. And God now is going to predict, despite the condition Jerusalem is in at the moment, He predicts this glorious future, this glorious establishment of Jerusalem. An establishment that as we read it has not happened yet in history. There was a precursor of it, as I said, during the time of Zerubbabel, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, during the time of the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the reestablishment of the temple, which stood until Jesus actually came and cleanse that temple, as we read about at men's group last night. But come 70 AD, Jerusalem, the temple, everything was knocked down again. And even though Israel is reestablished as a nation politically here in 1948, the temple isn't standing. So if you look at the circumstances of the world right now, it would be real easy to say, Well, I know what the Bible says, but it can't mean that. Well, here is God yet again saying, just watch me. Watch what I do with Jerusalem, because I'm going to do it in such a way that the nations of the earth and the Gentiles and my enemies are all going to see it and all going to marvel at it. Now, that's what the Bible says. That means it's either true 
or just go ahead and say that you just don't believe the Bible. But if you tremble at his word and you have the humility and the contriteness of spirit to say, I don't know everything, but God does, well, then you have to agree with God, take sides against yourself, take sides against the circumstances of the world and say, this has to happen because God says so. Here's what he says. Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Okay, so now he's talking to the contrite group, the people who believe his word, the people who love Jerusalem. And he's predicting a time when Jerusalem is going to be reestablished in such a way that people will rejoice over her, all you who love her. And be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her. Yeah, of course they're mourning right now. They're sad right now because Jerusalem's destroyed. The temple's knocked down. The walls are destroyed. But then God's predicting this joyous time to come where there's going to be this overflowing abundance in Jerusalem. And he's saying, be glad with her as she is reestablished in this way. You who are glad with her, you who love her, verse 11 says, so that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breasts, that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. The picture then is Jerusalem as a mother. And Jerusalem as a mother is sufficient to feed and care for all her people as if they were infants, as if they were babies. She's going to nourish them and they are going to be fully satisfied. In Galatians 4.26, Paul uses the particular phrase, look it up, would you, Micah? Galatians 4.26, he's going to say that Jerusalem, which is above, is the mother of us all. Well, he didn't just make that up. He was not just being poetic. He got that right from Isaiah. Because Isaiah describes future Jerusalem as a nursing mother. And then Paul picks it up and says this. What does it say, Micah? Uh, Galatians 4.26. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman, who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. So not only is Jerusalem, which is above, the mother of us all, but then he says, break forth and shout, because she bore children before she even travailed. Very much like what Isaiah just said, and an indication that Paul obviously was drawing his theology right from Isaiah here. So there is this future anticipation of Jerusalem being the all-nourishing mother of all those who love her. And it's wonderful language. But God is not done. Verse 12. For thus says the Lord. Behold, I extend peace to her like a river. Who's her in that sentence? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. God says, I'm going to extend peace to Jerusalem. That's all part of that glorious future for Jerusalem. 
By the way, every time you sing the song, it is well with my soul. You start with that line. When peace like a river. I mean, that's where they're getting it. Isaiah. For thus says the Lord, behold, I extend peace to her. And it's a flowing peace. It's a constant nourishing, watering peace like a river. And the glory of the Gentile nations will be like an overflowing stream. The glory of those nations, the glory of the Gentile nations are going to flow to Jerusalem. How wealthy is that going to make Jerusalem? You've got the blessings of God pouring out on you continually, flowing out to the nations as the nations are bringing their substance like an overflowing stream to Jerusalem. The glory of the nations will be like an overflowing stream, and you shall be nursed, again, the mothering language. You shall be carried on the hip and fondled on the knee. I saw a picture just the other day of April holding her nephew, fondling him on her knee, weren't you? It's, it's an automatic instinct that when caring for a baby, that you would make them feel safe and that you would fondle them on your knee. And God here says, all those who love Jerusalem, Jerusalem is going to provide for you and feed you and take care of you and nourish you and fondle you on their knee. What a word of tremendous closeness and kindness and love and tenderness. You shall be nursed. You shall be carried on the hip and you shall be fondled on the knees as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Does it sound like God has a future for Jerusalem? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Verse 14. Then you shall see this, and your heart shall be glad, and your bones shall flourish like the new grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be made known to his servants, but he shall be indignant toward his enemies. When God finally does this, in a moment he's going to talk about how all 12 tribes are going to be reestablished and regathered back into the land. When God does this, not only is it a great cause for joy and happiness among the Jews who love God, who tremble at his word, who are of contrite spirit, not only is it going to be proof, evidence, that their faith was rightly placed, but at the same time, God is going to show his indignance toward his enemies because his demonstration of sovereign love for Israel and Jerusalem is going to make all his enemies look the fool, is going to prove to them that they don't know what they're talking about because they didn't pay attention to his word. So then you shall see this, and your heart shall be glad, and your bones shall flourish like the new grass. By the way, I love that idea because I've got old and achy bones these days, and the whole idea of having bones that flourish like new grass is very attractive to me. 
the hand of the Lord shall be made known to his servants, but he shall be indignant with his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. You see the two camps? One group fondled on the knee, fed, nourished, taken care of, loved like a mother loves her child. Other group, fire, fury, indignation. And God's rebuke will be with flames of fire. By the way, what we just read on Sunday, the image that John saw in Revelation 4 of God, and there were lightnings and there were sounds and peals of thunders, And he was on his throne, which I kept describing as a chariot of clouds. Same language here in Isaiah. He's on his throne, but he has chariots like a whirlwind. And they're used to render his anger and his fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh. And those slain by the Lord will be many. By the way, the book of Isaiah wraps up by making reference one more time to the many slain. God is demonstrating his sovereignty, his holiness, his justice, his righteousness, his singularity, his aseity, his otherness by both his astounding blessings on those who tremble at his word, regardless of the circumstances of life, that is one demonstration of the great power and authority and glory of God, but so is his judgment. And he is going to use his judgment on his enemies as a nonstop demonstration of his own glory, his own holiness, his own righteous judgment, because both sides of that equation demonstrate that he is God. Verse 17, he's now going to describe the hypocrites as those who are worshiping him in the temple. They're bringing the oxen, they're bringing the goats, they're bringing their grain offerings, they're they're bringing their incense, they're doing all the religious stuff in the temple, but now God is going to expose what they really are, what they're really like, what they really do. Part of the many slain are those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens. How many times have we seen this in Isaiah now? They go to the groves, they go to the high places, they go to the mountains in order to worship the foreign gods. And they are following one in the center who eats swine flesh, detestable things, and mice. They shall come to an end Altogether, declares the Lord. So now we know what their hypocrisy was. That they were worshiping in the temple of Yahweh. They were worshiping in Jerusalem. But they were also worshiping in the groves, in the gardens. They were also doing abominable acts before God. So now you can understand why God would say, when you kill an ox in front of me, it's like you're killing a man. I'm holding you guilty. You're not getting any credit for the fact that you're going through your religious practice. You sacrifice a lamb before me, and I'm going to treat it like you broke a dog's neck. You're not gaining any benefit from that. 
And of course, he referred to them earlier as they who drink swine's blood or pig's blood. And over here, he makes the same reference to them. They eat swine's flesh and detestable things and mice. And they shall come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. For I know their works. I know their thoughts. And the time is coming to gather all nations and all tongues. It would be all people of every language. And they shall come and they shall see my glory. Okay, God has just declared that there is a time coming when he is going to establish himself in such a way that all peoples, all tongues, all nations are going to be aware of it. Now, among Israel and Judah at that moment in time, they have a history of dealing with Assyria. They have a history of dealing with Babylon, Persia. They have a a history of dealing with the Amorites, the people who are in their immediate area. And most of the Old Testament deals with Israel and those nations immediately surrounding Israel and the interactions between them. But what about the nations that are far away? What about the nations that are not butted right up against Israel, that are not right there in the Middle East? What about the distant nations? Well, God here in saying that there is a time coming when he's going to gather all nations, all tongues, all languages, all people, so that they will come and see his glory. In verse 19, he says, and I will set a sign among them. In other words, I will set a a miracle among them. And I will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshach, Rosh, Tubal, and Javan to the distant coastlands that have neither heard about my fame nor ever seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. So here God is saying, I'm going to do a miracle in Jerusalem. I think this is a messianic prediction. I'm going to do something so miraculous in Jerusalem that the survivors of Jerusalem are going to go out to the whole rest of the world and they are going to declare the glory of God. And then God lists all these areas. Now, we don't remember, we don't know geographically Tarshish and Put and Lud and Meshach, Rosh, Tubal and Javan. And I've heard people argue Meshach, Rosh, Tubal, that's Russia, you know. But I did a little digging. I'm going to read for you out of Ellicott's commentary for English readers. I like his commentary. Uh, Charles John Ellicott was actually a compiler of several different 17th century commentaries. He was born in early 1800s. But there were all of these 18th century, that would be the 1700s, commentaries floating around. He compiled them all and created what he called his commentary for English readers. Here's what he says about the the nations that are listed there in verse 19. First, the sign may be one of supernatural terror in the work of judgment, or, as the context makes more probable, 
It's a sign, it's a miracle of supernatural deliverance. That whole nation born in a day, or the Messiah coming, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The thought of a remnant to be saved is still characteristically dominant, like it is all through Isaiah. And that remnant is going to act as heralds of Jehovah to far distant nations who have not been sharers of any open antagonism to Israel and who were therefore not involved in any of these great judgments we've read about. And of these, the prophet names Tarshish, which either means definitely Spain or vaguely the nations far west of Israel. Put is not found anywhere else as the name of a nation and it probably stands for foot P-H-U-T, as it's rendered in the uh, Septuagint. But it's found to be in common with Lud in Ezekiel 27.10 and Ezekiel 35. And so it seems to be standing for an African people. So now you've got West, and now a reference to South down into Africa from Jerusalem. Lud joined with Pul here in Ezekiel 27.10 and with Foot and with Ethiopia and with Libya in Ezekiel 37.5 stands in the judgment of most scholars not for the Lydians of Asia Minor but for an African nation, the Ladim of Genesis 10.13 and Jeremiah 46.9 where they are named, as here, as famous for their skill as archers. On the other hand, Mr. Sace identifies Pull with the Apuli of Italy, and he identifies Lud with the Lydian soldiers, by whose help, historically, Semiticus made himself independent of Assyria. So that's a little piece of history there. So there's a little bit of controversy there. Is he talking about an African nation, in which case it's more people from the south? Or it may be a reference to the Lydian soldiers. Tubal, which is also mentioned in Ezekiel 27, 13, Ezekiel 38, 2 and 3, and Ezekiel, and Ezekiel 39, 1, points to the shores of the Black Sea, the tribes of the Scythian extraction that takes them up north toward Turkey. Javan, or Ionia, is in Genesis 10-2. And here it's used widely of any Greek settlements and points probably to those on the Black Sea. And that completes the list of nations that are named. And they all collectively represent far-off lands that had not heard of the God of Israel, but who were now to know him through the preaching of the remnant that God is sending. So there's a lot of stuff going on there in verse 9. All you need to know, all you need to take away from it is God is referring to distant lands, the whole rest of the known world, north into Turkey, west Spain and past Spain, even to the Tin Islands, out to England, south into Africa, God is planning to spread his message for his own glory. I will set up some sign, some miraculous sign among them, and I will send survivors from them to the nations. Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshach, Rosh, Tubal, and Javan to the distant coastlands 
that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. And here's the result. Listen to this amazing result. As a result of the preaching and the paying attention to, as a result of the trembling at the word of God and the proclamation of the glory of God, they, the nations, the Gentiles, they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules, and on camels. They will bring them to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offerings in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. That's really interesting to me because God just interpreted his own offerings. In the law, he commands grain offerings and that you bring those grain offerings in a clean vessel. And here God interprets that for us. We know that the killing of lambs all foreshadow Christ, the very lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Passover lamb. So we know that particular interpretation of that particular sacrifice. But here God gives us the satisfaction, the type and a type of the grain offering. Every year when they brought their grain offerings to the temple in Jerusalem, they were actually predicting the future regathering of all the sons of Israel being brought back by nations that had been cleansed, clean vessels, who were going to carry the children of Israel on their horses, on their camels, I like the phrase, in litters, in, in groups, going to bring them all back to Jerusalem, the same way that Israel brought a grain offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, the nations are going to bring Israel back to their promised land to the glory of God. Does it say that? Yep. Well, then that's what it means. And you can't say anything other than that and still claim to tremble at the word of God. <clears throat> If you start saying God is done with Israel and there's no future for Israel nationally and that Jerusalem, you know, is not the place where God has permanently placed his name. If you start saying church Israel replacement stuff, then you're not trembling at the word of God because the word of God is really, really precise and really, really clear to say that the day is coming. God just said it. The day is coming. When I am going to make people from every tongue and every nation find you Israelites and bring you back to Jerusalem. And then the wealth of those nations, the glory of those nations are going to be brought as gifts to Jerusalem. And the blessings of God, like the flowing of a river, are going to flow to Jerusalem and then outward to the nations from Jerusalem. That's what Isaiah has been repeating over and over and over. We've been looking at it for the last year and a half or so. That it just keeps saying that. It keeps saying that. And it wraps up by saying it again. So you've got to be really hard-headed to have a forehead like Flint 
you got to be really hard-headed to be able to read this and not say there's a future for Israel. God keeps saying it. And you either tremble at that and bow down in front of that and say, yes, sir, or you're one of the hypocrites that his anger burns against. I didn't say it. He did. Verse 21, I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. We don't have time to get into this right now, but people argue so adamantly about Ezekiel and the reestablishment of Ezekiel's temple and the fact that temple sacrifices are going to be reestablished according to everything that Ezekiel predicts. And people say, well, how can that be? Because Jesus is the once for all sacrifice, and so how can there be a reestablishment of the sacrifices? And of course, the answer to that question is, the Bible says so. Ezekiel said so. Here, Isaiah, God says through Isaiah, that he's going to reestablish the priesthood and the Levites in Israel. Why? Because the temple's going to be standing again, and there needs to be temple service again, and there need to be people who are dedicated to the service of God within the temple again. And that is future, because it hasn't happened yet. It's future to us right now, where God is going to reestablish Jerusalem, bring the 12 tribes back to their land and then establish temple worship once again. It's the same thing Isaiah says, same thing Ezekiel says, therefore, tremble at the word. That's your best option. Your best option is not to argue about it. Your best option is to say, okay, yes, sir, apparently that's what you're doing. Now, I don't have time to argue about it theologically, but I think it's because God doesn't do anything and leave it a failure. One day, Israel is going to worship God the way he meant for them to worship him, and Israel will be the theocracy that he always intended for them to be. He didn't just at some point throw up his hands and say, well, I tried. Instead, he is going to establish the proper worship of himself in Jerusalem, in the temple, through the Levites, again, the way it's supposed to be. Anyway, I just threw that in free. I got to go. It's getting late. I will take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. And now, boy, talk about eschatological. Now this is Revelation 21. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, shall endure before me. Okay, so here's a quick question, theologically speaking. When we get to the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, and we read about the new heavens and the new earth, which is the introduction of the age to come, which is a permanent age, an everlasting age that's going to be established. New Jerusalem's going to come down from heaven, and God is going to establish his everlasting kingdom. Is that everlasting? Yes. The language says so, right? Yes. Okay, watch what God does. Just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, will endure before me. We all agree that's going to endure everlastingly before you. We agree. So your offspring, who? The offspring of Jerusalem, the Israelites, the Jews. So your offspring and your name, Israel and Jerusalem, 
will endure. The same way that the new heavens and the new earth are going to endure everlastingly before me, so will you as a nation, and so will you and your name and your reputation. How firm is that promise? Firm, that's, that's a promise that you don't get to go, I don't know, that's vague. I'm not sure. What is he really saying here? It's just like at the end of Jeremiah 31, which is the promise of the new covenant. At the end of that chapter, God says, as long as the waves are rolling in the sea, as long as there is sun and moon and stars in the heavens, he says, as long as that all still exists, so you will be a nation before me forever. Okay, so if God can use his creation and the new creation and the new heavens and earth as examples of everlasting things and then say to Jerusalem and to Israel, as long as that exists, so will you, so will your name, so will your reputation, so will you as my people. You don't get to argue with that. Again, I think the right response to pretty much everything in the Bible is, yes, sir. You said it. Yes, sir. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. That means week by week, month by month, year by year, all mankind, all nations, every tongue, every people group, all mankind will come to bow down before me. That's right. In the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, everybody is going to be bowing before God. But look at verse 24. Tom, if you would, to wrap up our night, look up Mark 9, 48, if you would. And I will read Isaiah 66, 24, the very last verse in the book of Isaiah, which means we made it after all these months and years. We made it through every single verse of the book of Isaiah. It ends with this. They, all mankind who come and bow down before me, then they shall go and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. God is going to leave himself a permanent testimony of his own judgment, showing that he is perfectly willing to show his wrath, perfectly willing to demonstrate his righteousness in judgment. And he's going to leave himself a testimony to his own grace and his own righteous judgment. And on those who have received everlasting fellowship with God, they'll go and they'll look on the corpses of men who have transgressed against me. And is that going to be forever? Is that testimony of those corpses going to last forever? Well, it says, for their worm shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched and they shall be an abhorrence. To all mankind. Isaiah ends his book with one more reminder of the judgment of God. 
Jesus picked up that language in Mark 9.48, and in describing Gehenna, used that same language of the worm never dying and the fire never quenching. Read it, Tom. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So Jesus just gave validity to the description at the end of the book of Isaiah. Jesus, who would know, just validated this section of prophecy from Isaiah. So, if you tremble at the word of God, if you're not puffed up in your own ego, but are contrite in spirit, and are humble enough to stand before the word of God and just let it say what it says, well, then you have to agree that there's this glorious future for Jerusalem coming. And if you say you are Christian and you believe Jesus Christ and the words that he has spoken, he validated that prophecy out of the end of the book of Isaiah. You don't get better attestation than that. So... I will close the book of Isaiah with these two words. Yes, sir. Because I believe everything it says. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.